God, why is it that you let the evil seem to prosper, but bad things happen to good people? God, why do you let the powerful seemingly get away with murder while the weak and the poor are exploited? This isn't right. This isn't fair. Do you even care? God, why is it that the sexually promiscuous have no problems getting pregnant and then they go on to abort their babies and yet the godly couple who's been trying to get pregnant for years struggling with infertility can't? God, this isn't right. This isn't fair. Do you even care? God, why is it that that unqualified jerk who always kisses up to the boss got promoted while the diligent, hardworking woman who's overqualified got laid off? God, this isn't right. This isn't fair. Do you even care? God, why did you let that lousy person live until 102 while the godly, loving, attentive husband and father of two young kids dies at the age of 37 because of cancer? God, this isn't right. This isn't fair. Do you even care? God, why did you let the drunk driver who's already had three DUI convictions live and the innocent child in the backseat of the minivan die? God, this isn't right. This isn't fair. Do you even care? It, it seems like you could do something about this, God. But you don't. This is not how I would do things if I were you. Where were you when the school shooting happened? Where were you when the terrorists attacked, when the woman got raped, when the child got molested, when the bombings killed the innocent? God, this isn't right. This isn't fair. Do you even care? Be honest. How many of you have ever asked questions like this? Let me see a show of hands. Okay. Or at least thought thoughts like this. They may not have verbalized them. Is it okay to ask questions like this to God? Hold that thought. Well, Happy New Year. Um, yes, I recognize the irony um, between that greeting and my introduction. Uh, my name is Mark. I serve as one of the pastors here. And as we kick off 2024, we're, we're launching a new sermon series through the Old Testament book of Habakkuk. And We've given the subtitle of this sermon, given this sermon series a subtitle, When God Doesn't Make Sense. And I've been looking forward to this sermon series because I think we're all going to be able to relate with the prophet Habakkuk. How so? Well, on a very personal level, Habakkuk looked at the experience, or looked at and experienced injustice in the world around him. He felt it deeply. It broke his heart. He got angry. And not only that, he was bold enough to confront God about it. Bold enough to go to God and essentially say, this isn't right. This isn't fair. God, do you even care? And as a quick side, as a quick side note, this is one of the many things that I love about the Christian faith and the Bible. It doesn't candy coat things. It doesn't stifle emotion. As opposed to other major religions in the world whose adherents would never question their gods out of fear of retribution, the heroes of the Christian faith experience profound doubt. And they cry out to God with their heart-wrenching questions. 
I mean, look at Job. Look at the writers of the Psalms. Look at Sarah. She even laughed at God. Look, look at Jeremiah. Look at Thomas. Look at the disciples who had, been resur- who had seen the resurrected Jesus and still had doubt in their hearts. All this speaks to the veracity, the truthfulness of the Christian message. Because just think about it. If Christianity were a mere human invention, it makes absolutely no sense to come up with stories where your heroes are the ones who are questioning God and openly showing doubts. Okay, quick side note over. Let's get back to Habakkuk. You'll find this um, short three-chapter book in that section of your Bibles, right before the New Testament, where the pages are still stuck together, okay? So um, if you're looking for it and you, and you hit Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you've gone a little bit too far, just back up a little ways and go through the short books there at the end of the, the Old Testament and you'll find it. Um, it's in a section called the Minor Prophets. And the Minor Prophets, including Habakkuk, are called minor, not because they aren't important, not because they weren't good enough to get called up into the majors. No, they were called minor simply by nature of the fact that they were significantly shorter books than the major prophets like Ezekiel and Daniel and Jeremiah. Now, before we dive into um, the first 11 books, first 11 verses of this book together this morning, let me set the scene. To understand this book, we have to know its historical context. If you know anything about the Old Testament, and I'm not assuming that you do, and that's okay if you don't, but if you know anything about the Old Testament, it it tells a story, primarily a story about God choosing to bless a certain people group for the purpose of blessing all nations or all other people groups through that people group. This chosen people of God were, were the first... Um, were the descendants of a man named Abraham, and then um, through his son Isaac, and through his son Jacob. Now, Jacob had another name. Does anybody know what Jacob's other name was? Israel. Okay, maybe you've heard of that one. Israel. Israel had 12 sons, which formed the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. God's chosen people, the ones that God called out of the world to say, hey, I'm going to bless your socks off so that you will be a blessing to all other nations, so that I can make myself known through you. Well, through a series of events, Israel ends up down in Egypt, the nation of Israel. For about 400 years, they were enslaved there. But God rescued them under the leadership of a man named Moses, who brought them into the promised land, or led them there, and, set, and the, the promised land set strategically right at, the major, right at the center of the major trade routes of the ancient world. Why did God put the promised land there? Well, he had a job for the Israelites to do. He wanted them to be there to be a showcase people, reflecting his character to the nations around them. He had them there to, to, so that people could go, people who were wondering, you know, what is God like? They could look at the nation of Israel and go, aha, can we know your God too? And as he brought them into the promised land, God made a covenant with them. He said this, if you, if you obey me and follow my commandments, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to prosper you. But... If you do not follow my laws, if you do not follow my decrees, if you do not reflect my character accurately to a watching world, then I'm going to bring judgment upon you in the sight of the nations that you're supposed to be reflecting my character for. Well, if you know the story, the nation of Israel, um, eventually, as they are in the promised land, asked God for a king. 
The first king that they got was a man named Saul. After Saul came a man named David. After David, um, it was Solomon, David's son. But then after Solomon, there was some infighting in the family, so to speak, and the kingdom of Israel split, divided into two kingdoms. The northern's capital, northern kingdom's capital was Samaria, and it was composed of 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel, and so it retained the name Israel. The southern kingdom just had two tribes in it, Judah and Benjamin. I guess Judah was the bigger tribe because it retained the name Judah. Its capital was Jerusalem. And each of these kingdoms had a succession of kings that led them further and further and further and further away from obedience to God's laws. And you can read the stories of, of this drift in the Old Testament book of First and Second Kings, also Second Chronicles. And although both kingdoms rebelled against God, the northern kingdom had a little head start, okay? They were a little worse. And so in 722 B.C., God's judgment came on them first in the form of the Assyrian Empire who came in, swept through, and carried off the northern kingdom into exile and captivity. God raised up the Assyrians as a tool of his judgment. You know, the southern kingdom had some reforms along the way, and they lasted a little bit longer in obedience to God, but again, they drifted off towards wickedness and rebellion and, in a, and so in a succession of invasions, God raised up, uh, God's judgment came, and the Babylonians carried them off into exile as well, taking the Jewish nobility, including Daniel, that we learned about last year, um, in 605 BC, and then finishing the job and totally wiping out Jerusalem, tearing down its walls and everything in 586 BC. Well, based on the context clues in the little tiny book of Habakkuk that we're going to jump into together, Habakkuk, the date of the book is most likely somewhere around 610 BC. So, what's the context? The northern kingdom's already gone. It's carried off by the Assyrians. But the southern kingdom, where Habakkuk lives, it, it's still there. It's still intact. But Habakkuk is looking around and seeing the moral decay in his Jewish society. He's watching the decline as one king after another leads his people further and further away from obedience to God and his laws. The government is corrupt. Justice is perverted. The poor are oppressed. Things are getting worse and worse and worse. That's the context for our little book. Meanwhile, off in the distance to the east, Babylon is growing as a world power. It used to be Assyria. They used to be the big boys in town. But now, Babylon is growing. Assyria is in decline. And Habakkuk, who's a prophet, a spokesman for God, is processing all of this. Not only what's happening in his country, but what's happening on the world stage. And here's what's unique about Habakkuk. Prophets normally would talk to the, to the people about God. But what does Habakkuk do? Habakkuk does the opposite. He talks to God about the people. You know, prophets would, would normally give a declaration from God. Here's what God says. But Habakkuk is going to have a conversation with God. And we get to listen in on that conversation as we go through this tiny Old Testament book. So let's, with that in mind, let's dive into the first chapter, first verses of the book of Habakkuk. The words will be on the screen behind me. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. And this is Habakkuk talking here in verse 2, okay? 
Habakkuk's part of the conversation. Oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make, make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous so that justice goes forth perverted. So it's obvious here that Habakkuk is in distress. He has a broken heart as he looks at the world around him. He sees his nation in moral shambles. He notices that the law... <laughs> He calls it paralyzed. In other words, it's, it's ineffective. People aren't following it. Everywhere he looks, there's injustice. There's violence. People violating other people. People wronging other people. People injuring other people. And all this violence and injustice has likely come to Habakkuk's own doorstep. He's probably experiencing some of it personally, not just observing it out there. And it feels to Habakkuk like the righteous, the ones who are really trying to please God are outnumbered. They're surrounded. They're overpowered. And he's crying out to God here, God, this isn't right. This isn't fair. Do you even care? You can hear that in these first verses of the book. How long, God? Verse two. And usually when somebody asks how long, they're actually going through some pretty intense suffering, right? How much longer, God? I don't know if I can, I can put up with this much longer. How long, God? And another raw and honest question Habakkuk asks is in verse three. What is it? Why? Why? Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong? I see it, don't you? In other words, why is there so much evil? Why is there so much injustice? Why does it continue? And on top of that, God, why are you seemingly not doing anything about it? When I cry out to you, why does it feel like you don't hear? Like you don't respond? God, you're not bringing the action that I would expect here. God, this isn't right. This isn't fair. Do you even care? You know, we've often, I know I have, wrestled with questions like this. You raised your hand earlier saying that you did as well. Based on perhaps something that um, has happened to you in the past or someone you love, perhaps it's something that's happening to you right now or something you're observing on the world stage. Maybe you've lost your job. You've got a mountain of debt and no way to get out of it. You've been falsely accused. Someone is slandering your reputation. Your spouse just cheated on you. You're going through a nasty divorce. You've lost a loved one. You've miscarried a baby. You're struggling with infertility. You've received a concerning or terminal health diagnosis. Someone you love is hurting deeply. You're lonely and there's no hope of a significant relationship. You've prayed and prayed for your wayward child, but there's no softening in their heart. You know where I got that list? December, as a pastor, hearing my congregation. God, this isn't right. This isn't fair. Do you even care? Or maybe it's 
not necessarily a personal struggle that you're facing, but you, like Habakkuk, are simply looking at the violence, the wrong, the destruction in the world, the injustice around us, the school shooting in Nashville last spring, the invasion in Ukraine, the current mess in the Middle East, innocent people caught in the crossfire, children suffering. God, this isn't right. This isn't fair. Do you even care? Well, here's what we can learn from Habakkuk in these opening verses. The first principle, if you will, from our text this morning. So if you're taking notes, write this down. Or if you started, tune out, tune back in right here. Principle number one, would you say this with me? Verbalizing your raw, honest questions to God is okay. Verbalizing your raw, honest questions to God is perfectly okay. I would go so far as to say that God, in his grace, expects our questions, welcomes them. He's not afraid of them. After all, he's the one who created us with emotions. And we are made in his image. And when you think about it, that means that he's experiencing the same emotions. He feels the same grief. He feels the same anger, the same hurt. He can relate with us. And so verbalizing our raw, honest questions to God is perfectly okay. He would rather have us shout at him through our tears than walk away from him in our anger. God understands that because we live in a broken world and because we have a limited perspective, unlike him, on life and our circumstances, a crisis of faith is going to hit every single one of us at some point in our life, some point in our faith journey. We're going to go, ah, I'm not sure. And, and just like it did for Habakkuk here, He's having a crisis of faith, and we get to listen in on it, okay? This is a gift that God has preserved in the Scripture for us because he knows each of us is going to be right there at some point in time. When it hits, there's two common pathways that people take. The first is the religious pathway. What does that do? Well, that simply denies the bad or the evil with pious platitudes. Let me give you some examples. Everything happens for a reason. God is going to bring good out of this. You just wait and see, honey. God, you know, when God closes a door, he opens a window, always opens a window. Bunch of bunk. <laughs> Don't worry. God will never give you more than you can handle. No, he consistently does. There's no safer place than if you're in the middle of God's will. Have you heard that one? Equally as unbiblical. Never question God. Just, just, just let go and let God. How many of you have heard those empty, pious, religious phrases before? Let me see a show of hands. Okay. Good religious people. Like I said, or implied along the way, none of them are actually biblical. All of them, I would say, are pastorally, are more harmful to faith than helpful. And will oftentimes eventually push people towards the other common path when faced with a crisis of faith. And that's the secular path. The forget this, I'm out of here path. Where you turn your back on God and walk away. God, you're not doing what I think you should, so I'm taking my toys and I'm going home. 
God, you're, you're not acting on this injustice. You seem to be tolerating this evil. You keep letting bad things happen. You're not punishing the people who should be punished. You're not making my life better. I know what's good and right, God. And if it's going to be crappy like this, we're done. I don't believe in you anymore. I'm out. The secular path. You know, the religious path and the secular path are the most, two most common responses to a crisis of faith in the face of the problem of evil in the world. But there's a third way. And it's illustrated both by the person of Habakkuk and the name itself, Habakkuk. Um, Habakkuk, the name, means to embrace or wrestle. Both things are contained in that meaning. To embrace, to wrestle. And we see the prophet doing both of these things in his crisis of faith. He doesn't take the secular path and turn away from God. No, it's going to become evident as we go further and further in our text over the next few weeks that Habakkuk holds on to God for dear life. He embraces him. He turns towards him. But at the same time, he doesn't take the religious path and just dismiss evil and go, oh, everything's going to, it doesn't candy coat, it doesn't smooth it over. He, like Jacob, is wrestling with God. He comes to God with his raw, honest, emotion-packed, unfiltered questions. And right here is principle number two from our text, which is the third path we can take in the middle of a faith crisis. It's possible to embrace God in faith and wrestle with raw, honest questions at the same time. Would you say that with me? It's possible to embrace God in faith and wrestle with raw, honest questions at the same time. My friends, like I alluded to in my introduction, biblical faith and doubt are not mutually exclusive. Let me say that again. Biblical faith and doubt are not mutually exclusive. It's possible to simultaneously embrace God in faith and wrestle with raw, honest, difficult, unfiltered questions. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Because that's exactly what Habakkuk does. Now, do you want to see how God answers him? I do. So you're my captive audience, so you are too. Um, let, let's, let's listen back in on their conversation starting with verse, verse five. This is now God responding, okay? The, the tone changes, and that's why we, how we know uh, how our Bible translators knew to put a new heading in your Bibles there, okay? This is God's response to Habakkuk. And he isn't just addressing Habakkuk in his response. The, the pronoun, um, pronouns shift a little bit, and he's, he's responding with plural pronouns. In other words, he's not only addressing Habakkuk, he's addressing those who are asking the same questions in the nation of Israel. Israel, the remnant of faith of the faithful. Look among the nations and see, God says. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing something in your or y'all's days, if you want to put the southern translation in there, because it is plural. For I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. And if we were to stop right here, it would be very easy to misinterpret what God is saying. It kind of sounds like God is saying something like this. Don't worry, Habakkuk. Everything's going to be okay. I'm going to do something amazing that you're really going to love. It's going to make everything better. In fact, I've seen this specific Bible verse ripped out of its context, crocheted on stuff, and passed off that way. It's totally not what it means. 
That's not what this verse is saying at all, actually. God knows that Habakkuk is going to be blown away by his answer, but not in a good way. Let's keep reading. Verse 6. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans. Now, what you need to know about the Chaldeans, that's just another name for the Babylonians. Okay? The Babylonians. I'm raising up the Babylonians, that bitter and hasty nation who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. No, is there a law to themselves? Where's justice? Habakkuk cried. And here's God's answer. Justice is going to be brought by the Babylonians. A fierce people who are a law unto themselves, a greedy people who have no accountability to anything but their own appetites, their own appetite for power. And as for the speed at which the Babylonian army moves, let's read on in verse 8. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swift to devour. Babylon was over 700 miles to the east of, his, of Jerusalem. But we're meant to see here that that distance was nothing to them. They moved swifter than leopards and attacked like eagles seemingly out of nowhere with lightning speed. Verse 9. They all come for violence. All their faces forward. They're captives. They gather captives like sand. Habakkuk was crying out to God because of the violence he saw in his own nation, but now... What are the Habakkuk's bringing? More violence. Did I say Habakkuk's? I meant Babylonians. Yeah. It's one of the things after you say it, you're like, something wasn't right with that. What are the Babylonians bringing? More violence. They're, they're going to gather captives like what? Like sand. Yeah. You know, I don't know about this, but this might be an ironic reference to God's promise to Abraham earlier in the Bible that his descendants would outnumber what? The sands, the sand on the seashore. And here the Babylonians are going to come and gather up that sand. Verse 10, at, at kings they scoff and at the rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress for they pile up earth and take it. What does that mean? Well, ancient cities were often surrounded by what? These big old walls, okay? Jerusalem was one of those. The Babylonians laughed at walls. Why? They would just simply take their time and they would look around, okay, where's some dirt? And they would build themselves a ramp up to the top of the wall, hop over it, and violently conquer the city. It's exactly what happened to Jerusalem in 586 B.C. Verse 11. And then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose might is their God. The Babylonians were so convinced of their power that it had become what for them? Their God. The very thing that they depended on, the thing that they worshipped. They were an idolatrous people then who thought that they themselves were the almighty ones. God's answer in verses 5 through 11 was not good news for our prophet. It was not welcome news. It was not a satisfactory answer in his mind. Habakkuk, I know you're worried about violence and injustice, but I'm raising up the Babylonians. 
an even more violent, power-hungry, unjust, idolatrous nation to sweep in and destroy your nation. You think your life is bad now? Habakkuk, it's going, I'm letting you in on this, it's going to get worse. A lot worse. Principle number three. God's answers to our questions won't always match our hopes and expectations. I'm really tempted to say in the short term, but I'm not going to say that. It's true, but I'll save that for later. God's answers to our questions won't always match our hopes and expectations in this life. He won't always act in a way that we might expect or hope. And sometimes life on earth gets worse before, rather than getting better. And that's the message from our text today. So happy new year. Aren't you glad you came to church? <laughs> Don't worry, I won't close with that. Let me wrap up by simply asking a few questions to give a teaser for where we're going as we continue to learn from Habakkuk. What if, what if, the pathway to hope and intimacy with God runs through deep pain in life rather than deep fulfillment? What if acknowledging your doubts is the first step towards developing a deeper faith? What if asking the hard questions opens the door for a maturing knowledge of God's character? What if true communion with God isn't found on the mountaintop, but rather in the valley of vision? What if God is still good when life isn't? You know, Habakkuk's conversation with God continues. It's now Habakkuk's turn to talk back. And we'll see how he replies to God next week. We'll see how he replies to the shocking news he just received that God is raising up an even wickeder people. Is wickeder a word? It is now. Today it is. Thank you for giving me that permission. As the worship team makes their way back to the stage, I know that this room is in this room uh, with this many people in it. There are a good number of you struggling with a crisis of faith. It might look, it's going to look different for each person, but there's many of you struggling with a faith crisis right now. And I'd like to give you some pastoral encouragement. No matter what you're going through, instead of taking the path of the religious and denying the pain, denying the evil, instead of taking the path of the secularists and just turning your back on God, would you like Habakkuk, as we go through this book and continue to learn, would you, like Habakkuk, embrace God, hold on to him for dear life, while at the same time wrestling with him and with your gut-wrenching questions? The raw, difficult, honest questions. You know, we have a good example to follow if we're in that spot. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who some 2,000 years ago while he was hanging on the cross, experiencing perhaps the most unjust thing that could have happened to him, 
as an innocent man, suffering incredible injustice, what did he say on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My God, my God. What is he doing? He's embracing, he's holding on, but he's wrestling. Why have you forsaken me? Asking a gut-wrenching, emotion-packed, raw, honest question. You and I know the answer to that question now. In hindsight, the punishment that brought us peace was placed on him in that moment. You and I are the beneficiaries of the injustice that Jesus, God in the flesh, endured on our behalf, in our place, instead of us. So as the worship team leads us in these closing songs, I want to invite you to come to the table this morning. On these tables is broken bread and little cups of grape juice that are representative of the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ on our behalf. A significant reminder of what God has done at the pinnacle point of his grand redemptive plan that we only see a portion of right now. A reminder of what God has done to address the problem of evil in our world, not, not only in our world, but also in our lives. Pray with me. Father, as we come to the table this morning, may it be a reminder that you are good, that you do have a plan. It's not always what we want or hope or expect. In our limited perspective, we, we see a, a short ways into the future. We question why you would do things the way that you do. We know it's okay to ask those questions. As we come and remember what you have done for us, in part of your grand plan to make all things new and destroy evil and injustice once and for all, May we come with hope as we embrace and we wrestle. Amen.